You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist for The Post. We're less than a week away from the start of the United Nations Climate Change Conference in Glasgow, Scotland. So we're going to focus on our environment today. And I'm joined by Al Gore, the 45th Vice President of the United States, whose 2006 film, An Inconvenient Truth, about climate change won two Academy Awards and changed the way government officials and private citizens talk and think about the threat to our planet. I'm also joined by Alexandria Villasenor, who at 16 co-founded the U.S. Youth Climate Strike Movement. Welcome to both of you to Washington Post Live. Thank you for having me. Thank you, David. So, Mr. Vice President, uh, as the UN Climate Change Conference, uh, COP26, uh, we call it in shorthand, uh, convenes on Sunday, you said that you want a concrete action plan to come out of that. And I want to ask you, what are a few specific items that you'd want to see in that action plan? Great question, David. Thank you so much for having us on. And Alexandria, I'm so proud of what you've been doing. It's great to share this session with you. David, uh, we have already seen some commitments just in the run-up to COP26 uh, with the G7 and now China pledging to stop uh, their financing of overseas coal plants. Uh, uh, President Biden uh, and his counterparts in many countries have pledged to reduce emissions to zero by 2050 and to reduce them by half in this decade. President Biden has also uh, doubled the U.S. Uh, contributions to the so-called $100 billion fund to assist developing nations. But more needs to be done. And uh, unfortunately, some of the stars are not aligned as well in advance of this meeting as they were in advance of the historic Paris meeting in 2015. But I still think that some significant progress can be made, even if it's not uh, a grand slam home run. So tell me what the singles and doubles would be. I mean, what what's achievable in terms of new commitments? I even want to say enforcement mechanisms. In the arms control world, we have verification schemes. We don't yet in this climate area, but it's as, certainly as dangerous as as nuclear weapons proliferation. What what are the what are the achievements, the singles and doubles that could happen? Well, first of all, uh, there is a new coalition called Climate Trace that I have uh, helped to co-found uh, that will give us the ability to verify where the emissions are coming from uh, country by country and source by source. We already have the first independent comprehensive global inventory, and it will improve uh, in, in the months ahead down to what they call the asset level. As for the conference itself, we are, have been hoping for uh, bolder commitments from all of the nations that signed the Paris Agreement. This meeting was delayed by a year by the pandemic, of course, but it still is the first of the required uh, five-year interval meetings after Paris in which nations are called upon to upgrade and their commitments and uh, be more ambitious and bolder in the reductions of their emissions. Some countries have done that. I, I expect to see some more before the meeting convenes a, a week from today. Uh, but uh, there are some absences, and that's uh, somewhat disappointing. 
But um, as in Paris, David, uh, the business community, the investor community, civil society uh, are all a part uh, of this conference. And we, we're seeing some pretty dramatic uh, commitments with the Net Zero Asset Managers Alliance, for example, with uh, half, almost half of all of the assets under management worldwide, 43 trillion worth, now committed to have all their portfolios uh, aligned with net zero by the middle of the century, some of them well before that. Uh, we're seeing the phase out of coal uh, and we're seeing a dramatic uh, increase in the deployment of solar and wind. And may I note that in calendar year 2020 last year, uh, if you look at all of the new electricity generating uh, equipment installed worldwide, 90% of it was renewables, almost all of it solar and wind. We're seeing electric vehicles and batteries uh, ramp up uh, very quickly. All of the major auto manufacturers have announced plans to switch over. Uh, and we're seeing the emergence of uh, promising technologies like green hydrogen made with surplus renewable electricity, which will enable the decarbonization of metallurgy, steelmaking, for example. Uh, and regenerative agriculture and sustainable forestry uh, are among the solutions that are now being implemented uh, with more ambition. But, but the crisis is still getting worse faster than we are deploying these solutions. So we, we really have to step up the pace quite significantly. I want to come back in a moment to the question you mentioned of asset management and the financial side of, uh, of movement toward net zero. But I want to just ask uh, Alexandria, uh, as we head toward uh, COP26, what do you and what, what do you hear from your friends, people in your generation, uh, uh, about uh, the progress that's being made? What would you like to see come out of Glasgow? And, and what are your worries about lack of progress in some areas? Well, I think that going up into COP, uh, there's going to be a lot of youth activists who are going to be there. And this will be the second COP that I've gone to. And COP was actually one of the initial reasons that I got motivated to take action. It was after COP24 because that was a huge motivator because of the failures there. And so right now, a lot of youth activists and myself included are not that hopeful for this COP, but specifically we are not hopeful in some of our world leaders. We're hopeful for other activists. We're hopeful for the community of young people who are going to be there. That's where we get our hope. And many world leaders aren't attending and commitments aren't meeting the Paris Agreement. And so because of some of these factors, a lot of youth are going to make sure that our voices are heard and we're getting to we're getting prepared to hold our world leaders accountable to make sure that they meet these commitments, though. And we're not hearing any new commitments. And so we're going to make sure that we push them to make sure that there's more that they can do, because there's always more that we can do. And the last thing that I want to mention on this is as a youth activist and in the movement, one thing that youth activists are why it's so important to have us in these conversations is because we are the moral voice in these decision making rooms where they're making sure that world leaders hear and see the urgency of the climate crisis and we haven't really been indoctrinated into the system 
that so many adults and world leaders are in. And so we bring a factor of authenticity into this. And we're the most affected generation. Climate change will affect every aspect of our lives. And that's why it's important to have youth in these conversations. And that's why I'm excited to be there with a global movement of young people. And Alexandria, before I go back to, to the vice president, so China's uh, President Xi Jinping will not be in Glasgow. China is the biggest emitter of carbon dioxide in the world. It seems to be backsliding on coal. My question is, will there be young Chinese people in the streets in China demanding action from their leadership? Does your movement have contact with people abroad who could make that happen? Well, there are some activists from China who are are making their voices heard. Um, Howie is actually in Glasgow. She's an activist from China who's going to be there. And so um, it, we our movement is global. We have activists all around the world and especially in China. And she's Howie U specifically has been in jail. She's been silenced before. And so one thing that we are actually talking a lot about is the right to protest and the right to be out there protesting and that there should be more protections. There's lots of young people like Howie who are going out there and pushing their governments for change, but yet they're being silenced. And there needs to be more protection for activists who are out there pushing for the right thing to do. Our Chinese and Russian activists are in danger and our activists in Russia have actually gone to jail before as well. And so it, it's, it's so important that we have protections for these activists who are going out there and just trying to make sure that we do the right thing. And so they should not be silenced. And um, I also want to mention that activists are being murdered around the world. There were 227 activists killed last year. And so the most ever. And so it's it's important that we uphold activist safety. And um, that's going to be a big topic as well at COP that youth activists are going to push for is for the protection of activists. Um, in specific to China, uh, China isn't the largest cumulative emitter. Uh, we are. China is only 12% of cumulative emissions, but we're 25%. And so it's important that we get global climate action and um, that we make sure to push for action from our world leaders. China in the US, cumulative emissions are, are important because CO2 stays in the atmosphere. And so we need action from all of these world leaders and especially the ones who are contributing the most to the cumulative emissions. Helpful uh, answer, thank you very much. So Mr. Vice President, I wanna come back to you now. You uh, just uh, gave an interview to the Financial Times in which you had some strong words. You called for an overhaul of banking, asset management, uh, accounting standards to meet the net zero uh, 2050 goal. Uh, you said, for example, that you thought financial institutions should have to disclose the climate risks in their portfolios. Um, tell us about the, the specific changes that will affect financial markets that you'd like to see enacted and how you're going to proceed to, to pr make pressure for those. Well, thanks for the question. It's, it's, it's spot on. And there's widespread consensus among economists that our current accounting standards are, are not fit for purpose, David. Uh, they do not uh, famously do not include what are called uh, negative externalities. So if you use the sky as an open sewer for your gaseous waste, 
you're allowed to do that for free. And the costs are offloaded on the rest of society, on all of us, especially Alexandria's generation and those to come. Uh, and that needs to be taken into account. Uh, and there are financial risks to lenders and others who do not take them into account. Remember for a moment uh, the subprime mortgage crisis back in 2007-2008. There was kind of a mass delusion among financial institutions who decided that if somebody couldn't uh, make a down payment uh, and sh couldn't prove they could make monthly payments, it was still okay to give them a mortgage and then lump millions of them together and uh, pawn them off into the global markets and all the risk would magically disappear. But when uh, a, a little time passed and people began to look carefully at the worthlessness of those subprime mortgages, all of a sudden there was a collapse, a credit crisis, and that triggered the, the Great Recession of 2007, 2008. We now have a subprime carbon bubble many times larger, about $22 trillion worth of carbon assets that cannot be burned, will not be burned, but are still valued in the market as if they're all going to be put to their intended use and contribute to the destruction of the future of human civilization. That's not going to happen. Uh, and regulators and others should step in uh, and address the, the failure, yet another mass delusion in financial markets, uh, and insist that in protecting the public and the human future that we do uh, have accurate accounting standards. Just to, to push back a, a moment on, on that, the Wall Street Journal had a front page uh, uh, headline this morning. You may have seen it, uh, uh, Mr. Vice President, but it, it said climate-focused investors, in other words, the investors you'd like to see who focus on these long-term risks, missed the oil and gas rally with the S&P energy sector up 54% this year compared to 21% from the S&P 500. Now, you could say that's classic short-term thinking, but yeah. uh, it's, it's the reality, as you know better than I, for investors. So how, literally, on a day when um, you're saying you have to think long term. The journal writing for its investing public is saying people who were in these climate focused funds got slammed and missed and missed an energy rally. What do you say to them? Well, you, you said it yourself. They, they missed a short term rally, but that doesn't change the long term reality or, or even the midterm reality. Uh, we are seeing uh, nations around the world uh, ban the burning of coal, quite a few of them. We're seeing nations pledge uh, net zero uh, futures. Uh, and perhaps more significantly, David, the, the cost of electricity uh, from solar and wind was cheaper than electricity from new fossil plants uh, in only 1% of the world uh, the year before the Paris Agreement. Five years later, it's cheaper in two-thirds of the world. Three years from now, it will be cheaper in 100% of the world. There have been far more uh, new fossil fuel plants canceled than, than built because the new technologies are better and cheaper, more economical, uh, and they do not uh, pollute. Uh, so um, the same thing is happening, by the way, in the fossil fuel uh, uh, the second largest market they have, and that is transportation. Electric vehicles within the next year and a half to two years 
some of the most popular model categories will be cheaper in the EV version than the internal combustion engine version within four years in all model categories. That's why virtually every automobile manufacturer in the world uh, is switching over to electric vehicles. We just had a huge new investment here in Tennessee from Ford. Uh, uh, others are following along. Uh, and the, the fossil fuel companies are telling the markets that, yes, they appear to be losing their first and second largest markets, but they're going to make it up with more plastics. <laughs> Petrochemicals is their third largest market. 75% of that is plastics, and that's not working out so well for us either. Uh, and, and so this uh, short-term rally may delude some people into thinking that the, the trend of history may be making a U-turn. It, it's not. What we're doing in using the atmosphere as, as an open sewer is literally insane. The scientific community has been warning us in ever more dire language that, that we are threatening the survival of human civilization. And by the way, we're seeing with the flooding in the Northwest today, with what happened in the Northeast just a few weeks ago, 93% of the American West is in drought, half of California, 100% of California, half of California in the most extreme form of drought. Six of the seven largest fires in the history of California all took place last year. This cannot go on. And as someone famously said, if something can't go on, it won't. And markets have to adjust to this reality. That's why investors are stepping up. Uh, and that's why a lot of companies are making 100% renewable commitments, uh, beginning with the consumer-facing companies. But others are under pressure from their customers, their employees, their families, uh, their peers. Uh, this sustainability revolution, uh, we're in the early stages now, uh, is the largest new business opportunity in all of history. It has the magnitude of the Industrial Revolution coupled with the speed of the Digital Revolution. And anyone who is distracted by a short-term flash in the pan uh, because of the uneven recovery from the pandemic uh, and the supply side uh, problems uh, with the ports and uh, fossil fuel supplies. Uh, so this is a short-term uh, flash in the pan. The, the, the trend of history is very much in the direction of sustainability. So let me just ask you one more uh, thing uh, from your FT interview, and then I want to play a short clip from your wonderful film, An Inconvenient Truth. But you said something uh, to the FT that I thought was fascinating, which, which was to basically uh, argue that uh, one of the most popular responses to, to climate problems, namely carbon offsets, people planting trees to make up for the carbon that they're putting into the atmosphere, makes no sense. Uh, and you had a, a sharp quote, I'll just read it for our viewers. It's suicidal for the human race to continue on this track and to pretend that it can somehow be mitigated by promising to plant trees here, there, and everywhere. That is simply not realistic. So just continue that, if you would, the critique of carbon offsets. Well, uh, let me add that in that same interview, I also pointed out that offsets do have a role to play. They just can't be a get out of jail free card. Uh, for, for example, let me give you an example also from the morning news. So Shell Petroleum uh, is claiming offsets from a forest uh, that they're going to protect. 
that was already declared a national park and is already uh, under protection. Uh, we have seen uh, forests claimed as offsets in the West that have burned in the last few weeks. So they, they do have a role to play. The, so far, the best technology for sequestering carbon is called a tree. Uh, you take it into scale and it's a forest. So we do need to plant more trees and the offset markets can play a role, but they need to be the last resort. Job number one is reducing emissions. We are now putting 162 million tons of man-made global warming pollution into the sky uh, as if it's an open sewer. You, you see a, a picture of the troposphere from the space station behind me. It's so thin. If you could drive a car straight up in the air at interstate highway speeds, you'd get to the top of that blue line in about five minutes. That's where all the greenhouse gases congregate. Uh, and, and so we have to, it's insane. The cumulative amount that lingers there, as Alexandria said, um, now traps as much extra heat every day as would be released by 600,000 Hiroshima-class atomic bombs exploding every 24 hours. This is insane. We're disrupting the water cycle. We're driving species extinct. Uh, the, the United Nations says that we may have one billion climate refugees by the middle of this century. Think of the destabilizing effect that has on political equilibria around the country. We're taught, I'm taught to welcome the refugees, and I think that's correct. But, but my political experience tells me that too many too soon can trigger xenophobic reactions. And I think it's one of the reasons for this wave of populist authoritarianism that is threatening democracy and capitalism. People who, who might imagine that this is a, a recent set of warnings from you need to take a look at what you were saying in 2006, uh, where you were talking about where carbon dioxide levels might be in 50 years if nothing was done to improve the situation. Let's take a quick look at the clip from uh, An Inc Inconvenient Truth. When some of these children who are here are my age, here's what it's going to be in less than 50 years. You've heard of off the charts. <laughs> Within less than 50 years, it'll be here. Mr. Vice President, a scary chart. Um, where are we now on that chart regarding carbon dioxide emissions? Well, to give you a, a, a comparison to make those lines meaningful, this much uh, on the coal side, uh, has been was associated in the last ice age with having a mile of ice over your head where you're located right now. Uh, uh, several times that much on the warm side would lead to the possibility that he, this planet would not be inhab uh, inhabitable by human beings. And we are already at 417 parts per million. That compares to 280 parts per million before the industrial revolution, 260 uh, before the agricultural revolution, and we're on the, on the way up uh, continually. Uh, and, and those two lines you saw in that graph, they, they show the, the lockstep relationship between CO2 and temperature. Uh, last year was the hottest year uh, ever measured with instruments. The, the hottest seven years were the last seven years. We've now seen temperatures uh, 125 degrees and above. We've seen the the, the heat index reach 165 degrees in some 
places, the combination of heat and humidity. Uh, and that is why there are so many areas that are now in danger of becoming literally unlivable, where human beings can't survive for more than two or three hours outdoors. And that's why a lot of them are already migrating. There, last year, there were four times as many climate refugees uh, as there were all the refugees from wars and conflicts. We got a lot of them on the southern border uh, of Texas uh, and uh, of the U.S. And, and Mexico, and they didn't come from Mexico. They came from Central America, where, where uh, like m many areas in the tropics and subtropics, the combination of these elevated temperatures and droughts uh, and rain bombs from the disruption of the water cycle are, are driving people away from their homes because they don't have anything to eat. Alexandria, I, I want to ask you a, a question about the uh, future politics of this issue. As you know, and the vice president, we all know, we're a very divided country right now. But I'm wondering whether on climate issues, you find Republicans, young Republicans your age, feel pretty much the same way you do about these issues. In other words, whether um, it will be hard for a Republican in the future to get elected without having a more forward-leaning, committed position on climate. You know, this is actually something talked about a lot within my organization, Earth Uprising, and we focus a lot on climate education. And so Earth Uprising focuses on climate education peer to peer to empower young people to take direct action. And so we have youth all across the country and especially in very conservative neighborhoods. And what we've noticed is that they don't necessarily see climate change as a po political issue. Instead, they organize with us and they look at the science of what is going on. And so um, they, as well, what we're noticing is that they're influencing their parents as well. All of these young people are seeing the science behind what is going on and they're going and having conversations with their parents about this. And then they're influencing their parents on who they vote for and voting for a climate candidate. And so actually a recent study showed that teenage daughters are the most influential with their with their parents and are changing their minds as well. And so it's definitely the power of young people in persuading those who can vote to do the right thing because I'm 16, I won't be able to vote for a couple more years now and for a lot of young people we can't wait for that time. So we need those who can vote to be able to vote for a climate candidate. And so I need my parents to vote in my best interests. And those young people are doing the same thing. They're pushing their parents to vote for the right candidates. Mr. Vice President, a, a, a quick political question for you. We are in the final days, hopefully, of congressional negotiation about an overall budget package, uh, in, including a, a reconciliation social spending portion that's going to uh, provide for, for climate uh, spending. A specific point of contention is the so-called CEPP, the, the Clean Energy Performance Plan, I think is what that stands for. Mm -hmm. uh, Senator Joe Manchin has argued that we're in a period of transition, that that plan as currently structured puts so much emphasis on renewables that it uh, doesn't put enough money into so-called firm power, the power that's available when the wind doesn't blow, the sun doesn't shine. I find a lot of sensible people who know a lot about energy and the environment think that there's a point to that, that we do need to have firm power in this plan, some kind of low carbon fuels. What do you think about that argument? 
Well, I think there was a time in the past where there was some merit to that argument, David. I don't think there's merit to it now. As, as Amory Lovins and many others have pointed out, a widely distributed grid takes care of that problem. And more to the point, uh, the in incredible advances in battery storage technology now make it possible to use uh, solar power for many more hours after the sun goes down and wind power for many more hours after the wind stops blowing. Uh, and uh, the, the, the emergence of green hydrogen, which is made from uh, the surplus wind and solar uh, when the demand is low, but they're producing more of it than they can possibly use, is really taking care of that. Uh, there are places now that have already switched over to use natural gas uh, peaker plants as a last resort to, to fill uh, the remaining gaps. But no, it is now possible to move uh, to 100% renewable energy. And there has been there have been uh, many studies validating that. You know, there, uh, you, you probably knew the, the late great Russian poet Yevgeny Yevtushenko. He wrote a famous poem called Half Measures about a man leaping a chasm. And the point of it was, don't try to make that leap uh, in two uh, tranches. <laughs> you have to clear it. We're now in a stage where with all the rapid deployment of renewables, it's still not enough but we have to go the rest of the way uh, and stop using these dirty fossil fuels. And by the way, uh, the co-pollution is killing 9 million people a year from the conventional air pollution. This is good for us in every single way. We just have to move farther and faster. I wanna ask you a quick uh, question on the way out, uh, Mr. Vice President. Uh, President uh, Bill Clinton, uh, with whom you served, just recovered from a health scare. He was diagnosed last week with sepsis. He was discharged from the hospital last week. I'm just wondering if you talked to him and how's he doing? I did talk to him. He's doing well. Uh, he's looking forward to what his doctors predict will be a, a full uh, recovery. He's already out of the woods and uh, all of us are wishing him well and hoping for a speedy and full recovery. So unfortunately, we're out of time. This has been a fascinating discussion. I want to thank former Vice President Al Gore uh, and Alexandria Viestanor for a really interesting discussion across the range of climate issues. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Keep it up, Alexandria. Yeah, it was great to see you. Thank you for all you're doing, Mr. Vice President. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.